In this episode of Lessons Learned, we continue the reading of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, written by Rebecca Skloot. Starting Part 2, Death. 1951, Chapter 12, The Storm. There was no obituary for Henrietta Lacks, but word of her death reached the Guy lab quickly. As Henrietta's body cooled in the colored freezer, Guy asked her doctors if they'd do an autopsy. Tissue culturists from around the world had been trying to create a library of immortal cells like Henrietta's, and Guy wanted samples from as many organs in her body as possible to see if they'd grow like Gila. But to get those samples after her death, someone would have to ask Henrietta's husband for permission. Though no law or code of ethics required doctors to ask permission before taking tissue from a living patient, the law made it very clear that performing an autopsy or removing tissue from the dead without permission was illegal. The way Day remembers it, someone from Hopkins called to tell him Henrietta had died and to ask permission for an autopsy, and Day said no. A few hours later, when Day went to Hopkins with a cousin to see Henrietta's body and sign some papers, the doctors asked again about the autopsy. They said they wanted to run tests that might help his children someday. Day's cousin said it wouldn't hurt, so eventually Day agreed and signed an autopsy permission form. Soon, Henrietta's body lay on a stainless steel table in the cavernous basement morgue, and Guy's assistant Mary stood in the doorway breathing fast, feeling like she might faint. She'd never seen a dead body. Now, she was there. She was with the corpse, a stack of Petri dishes, and the pathologist, Dr. Wilbur, who stood hunched over the autopsy table. Henrietta's arms were extended, as if they were reaching above her head. Mary walked toward the table, whispering to herself, You're not going to make a fool of yourself and pass out. She stepped around one of Henrietta's arms and took her place beside Wilbur, her hip in Henrietta's armpit. He said hello. Mary said hello back. Then they were silent. Day wanted Henrietta to be presentable for the funeral, so he'd only given permission for a partial autopsy, which meant no incision into her chest and no removal of her limbs or head. Mary opened the dishes one by one, holding them out to collect samples as Wilbur cut them from Henrietta's body. Bladder, bowel, uterus, kidney, vagina, ovary, appendix, liver, heart, lungs. After dropping each sample into a Petri dish, Wilbur put bits of Henrietta's tumor-covered cervix into containers filled with formaldehyde to save them for future use. The official cause of Henrietta's death was terminal urema, blood poisoning from the buildup of toxins normally flushed out of the body and urine. The tumors had completely blocked her, her, her urethra, leaving her Doctors unable to pass a catheter into her bladder to empty it. Tumors the size of baseballs had nearly replaced her kidneys, bladder, ovaries, and uterus. And her other organs were so covered in small white tumors that it looked as if someone had filled her with pearls. Mary stood beside Wilbur, waiting as he sewed Henrietta's abdomen closed. She wanted to run out of the morgue and back to the lab, but instead she stared at Henrietta's arms and legs, avoiding anything to avoid looking at into her lifeless eyes. Then Mary's gaze fell on Henrietta's feet, and she gasped. Henrietta's toenails were covered in chipped, bright red polish. When I saw those toenails, Mary told me years later, I nearly fainted. I thought, oh, jeez, she's a real person. 
I started imagining her sitting in her bathroom painting those toenails and it hit me for the first time that those cells we'd been working with all this time and sending all over the world, they came from a live woman. I'd never thought of it that way. A few days later, Henrietta's body made the long winding train ride from Baltimore to Clover in a plain pine box, which was all day could afford. It was raining when the local undertaker met Henrietta's coffin at the Clover Depot and slid it into the back of a rusted truck. He rolled through downtown Clover, past the hardware store where Henrietta used to watch old white men play checkers, and on to Laxtown Road, turning just before the shack where she danced only a few months earlier. As the undertaker do- drove into Laxtown, cousins filed onto porches to watch Henrietta pass their hands on their hips or clutching their children as they shook their heads and whispered to the Lord. Cootie shuffled into his yard, looked straight into the falling rain and yelled, Sweet Jesus, let that poor woman rest. You hear me? She had enough. Amens echoed from a nearby porch. A quarter mile down the road, Gladys and Sadie sat on the broken wooden steps of the home house, a long pink dress draped across their laps, and a basket at their feet filled with makeup, curlers, red nail polish, and the two pennies they'd rest on Henrietta's eyes to keep them closed for the viewing. They watched silently as the undertaker inched through the field between the road and the house, his tires sinking into puddles of red mud. Cliff and Fred stood in the graveyard behind the house, their overalls drenched and heavy with rain. They'd spent most of the day thrusting shovels into the rocky cemetery ground, digging a grave for Henrietta. They dug in one spot, then another, moving each time their shovels hit the coffins of unknown relatives buried with no markers. Eventually, they found an empty spot for Henrietta near her mother's tombstone. When Cliff and Fred heard the undertaker's truck, they walked toward the home house to help unload Henrietta. When they got her into the hallway, they opened the pine box and Sadie began to cry. What got her most wasn't the sight of Henrietta's lifeless body. It was her toenails. Henrietta would have rather died than let the polish get all chipped up like that. Lord, Sadie said, Henry must have hurt something worse than death. For several days, Henrietta's corpse lay in the hallway of the home house. Doors propped open at each end to let the cool, wet breeze that would keep her body fresh. Families and neighbors waded through the field to pay respects, and all the while, the rain kept coming. The morning of Henrietta's funeral, Day walked through the mud with Deborah, Joe, Sonny, and Lawrence, but not Elsie. She was still in Crownsville and didn't even know that her mother had died. The Lax cousins don't remember much about the service. They figure there were some words, probably a song or two. But they all remember what happened next. As Cliff and Fred lowered Henrietta's coffin into her grave and began covering her with handfuls of dirt, the sky turned black as strapped molasses. The rain fell thick and heavy, fast. Then came a long, rumbling thunder, screams from the babies, and a blast of wind so strong it tore the metal roof off of the barn below the cemetery and sent it flying through the air above Henrietta's grave. Its long metal slopes flapping like the wings of a giant silver bird. The wind caused fires that burned tobacco fields. It ripped trees from the ground, blew power lines out for miles, and tore one lax cousin's wooden cabin clear out of the ground, threw him from the living room into his garden, and then landed on top of him, killing him instantly. Years later, when Henrietta's cousin Peter looked back on that day, he just shook his head and laughed. 
Henry, Henny never was what you'd call a beating around the bush woman, he said. We should have knew she was trying to tell us something with that storm. <laughs>